Hey, it's Seth Godin. In the summer of 2012, I had an amazing opportunity to spend three days with a group of extremely motivated entrepreneurs, people right at the beginning of building their project, launching their organization. During those three days, I took them on a guided tour of some of the questions they were going to have to wrestle with, some of the difficult places they were going to just stand up and say, this is me, this is what I'm making. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, but I hope this is the next best thing. Excerpts from the live event, unrehearsed, no slides. Here it is. Enjoy it. But even more important, I hope you do something with it. Thanks for listening. Okay, so, gifts. First thing I brought over from my office is the soon-to-be, well, it already is out of print, but the soon-to-be none-left-in-my-office edition of the dip on audio CD. If you still have a CD player, feel free to hand those out. And I'm going to talk about the dip for 10 minutes. How many of you have read it? Raise your hand. Wow. My publisher did not want to publish it. He only agreed to publish it if I would write a real book. There are a couple things in this book that are misunderstood. So let me try to clarify, and for those of you who haven't read it, catch you up. In our society, starting stuff is uh, applauded. That when you say to your grandmother, I'm pre-med, party will ensue. That when you join the gym, you already feel healthier. All you did was sign a check that when you tell people you're engaged, parties will ensue. That there's this sense that going down a new road is exciting. Clean paper in your notebook. So lots of people start stuff. And almost nobody finishes stuff. Very few pre-meds end up becoming neurosurgeons. Right? Half of all marriages end up in divorce. You can go down the list. There's lots of things we say we're going to do on a Wednesday afternoon, and then three, four, six months, two years down the road, we're not doing it anymore. Why? Well, if we look at the economics of the situation, it's this. The reason those outcomes are valuable is they're scarce. Not, there aren't a lot of neurosurgeons, which is why neurosurgeons get paid a lot. If everyone was a neurosurgeon, brain surgery would be cheap. But in fact, there are few. So how do we get from lots of people start businesses, lots of people start projects, lots of people open restaurants, et cetera, et cetera, to only a few come out at the other end? Add to that what Google did. What Google did was they made it from hundreds and hundreds of people having hundreds and hundreds of quiet individual conversations to one answer to most searches. I need a copywriter who specializes in direct mail copy for pharmaceutical companies. There's one match, number one in Google, just one. Interesting study, guy did, I really don't know who to credit it to. I could probably try to look it up. But you say to people, uh, you get a letter from a lawyer, and what the lawyer says is, I represent a client who recently passed away and left $5 million dollars. You get half of it if you find the other person who also gets half of it. So if the two of you, strangers, 
find each other, you each get two and a half million dollars. You need to find each other at noon on September 10th in Paris. And you're not allowed to run any ads or do anything to actively find each other. So the question I would ask you is, what would you do to maximize the chances you met this other person noon on September 10th? You would go to Notre Dame. Any other thoughts? The vast majority of people on the planet say, I would go to the base of the Eiffel Tower. Turns out the Eiffel Tower is the best in the world as a solution to this problem. And in New York City, if you ask people from New York anyway, it's the clock at Grand Central Station. I would go to the clock at Grand Central Station at noon. You're making a face. Was that where you would go? Interesting, because the problem with the Empire State Building is there isn't a place at the Empire State Building. There's too many places to stand at the Empire State Building. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying I happen to agree with both of them. The interesting thing is nobody says I would go to Jonas Schmimmel Kamisch's place. No one says I would go to Shake Shack. Everyone or most of the people pick one place. When you are the place, when you are the Nike, Apple, Facebook example that all business writers use every time, when you are the CrossFit, not the guy who's sort of like CrossFit, when you are seen as the best in the world, the benefits are outsized. You come out way ahead in trust, in revenue, in profitability, in ability to make noise, in anything it is that you seek to do if you are seen as the best in the world. Now, what does best in the world mean? It means world, as in my world, the only little place I care about, not the wide, wide world. So, you know, I was, I was telling Don about the realtor down the street. He's the best in the world at selling residential houses in the 10706 zip code, right? So it's not the world world, it's my world. And best doesn't mean the most expensive or the most supreme or the fanciest. It just means the one I will pick. The one I will pick for my budget, the one that I choose, is the best. Because why would I pick anything other than my best option? So the goal in whatever we build is to be the best in the world at it. And thanks to the internet, it's easier to, for there just to be one. And the reason that we can't all be the best in the world is because it's scarce. And somewhere between the day we get excited and we start, and the end, we quit. And so it's a book about quitting. And I have two things to say about quitting. One, quitting is underrated. That we quit things all the time. Most of you don't still take ballet lessons, right? Someone, some people in this room when you were four had a tutu. You don't have a tutu anymore, I hope. <laughs> so along the way, you quit ballet. And you don't beat yourself up about it. You just, that's part of what it is to do things. You quit. But the thing is, we quit the wrong things at the wrong time. We quit our workout schedule right before it's something that was about to become a habit and actually make us healthy, right? We quit the marathon, not at mile two, when everyone's cheering us on, but at mile 22, which is when everyone quits. And if we just went a little further, we would get all the benefits of finishing. But it's in that moment when we can't go on that we quit. So what I argue for is a really simple thing, which is don't start anything unless you've invested what it's going to take to finish it. I'm not talking about hobbies and stuff like that. I'm talking about projects. Don't start a project unless you're prepared to go to the end. Now, the words start and end are tricky here. For me, I start 
writing 10 books a year. But I mash around with them and I play around with them and I play with them and I don't tell anyone about them. And then one day, one of them is the next book. And I have never failed to finish a book once I've announced it's the next book. So that there's all this thrashing that happens at the beginning that doesn't count. But the post-thrash moment, when you say, yes, I'm going to do this, you have a lifestyle, a practice, that says, when I make that announcement, I'm going to get through the dip. I know the dip is really hard. That's why I have chosen to do it. So in your case, Chris, the idea is not to say, I am committing to having a sound thing. It's, I'm going to stick with this building and organization until I do. There will be lots of detours and dead ends along the way, but that doesn't matter. I will deal with the hard part of getting through it because when I get on the other side, it's worth it. And there, so there are two kinds of projects. There are cul-de-sacs, dead ends, uh, things that are never going to get better. This is the person who goes to work at Goldman Sachs as the receptionist and thinks that they can work their way up to CEO. No, actually you can't. There's no dip there. It's a dead end. There is no else ever comes out at the other end. And the way you know it's a dead end is, has anyone ever done this before? Has anyone ever persisted their way through this in the way I am doing it? Now, you might be the first who ever did it. You might be the first person who ever swam to Cuba. That's possible. But in general, it's way better to sign up for a path where you know there's an outcome. There are 50-year-olds who have gone from the couch to finishing the Boston Marathon. I know that if I do this day after day after day, there's a chance. Right? So that's how you tell a cul-de-sac, a dead end, from the kind of work where there's a dip. You had a question, Luke. Okay. So once you are comfortable with this strategic quitting model to say, it's not only okay, it's imperative that I quit everything I'm not prepared to push through the dip on, you will quit early when it's cheap as opposed to quitting late when it's expensive. And so if you're walking around knowing you have a quit card that you can use in the right moment, but the cost of it is you're never allowed to quit something in the wrong moment, you become that person who can stare down the thing that gets everybody else to quit. You'll be the person who's still in the gym in March, right? Because it's the people in the gym in March who are the ones who are getting fit. It's the ones who stopped going at in February that make all the money for the health club, right? And the same thing is true when you're building any of these projects we've been talking about. You're talking about two, three, five, seven-year processes. And that's why the rest of this afternoon is so important because it's not a three-day thing you're doing or a two-week thing to do it. You know, the first seven versions of the hostel are going to fail. People aren't going to sign up and the health department's going to shut you down and the landlord is going to screw you over and something else isn't going to work, but you're going to learn every single time. And the ninth time you do it is when it's going to work. But if you quit at number seven, you're never going to know that. And so that is what you need to be laying tracks for, is to say, I get the fact that it's not going to work and it's not going to work and it's not going to work and then maybe it'll work. So don't tell me the magic answer, please, today. Tell me how to make sure my process is in place. So I'm a learning organization. I'm not someone who just had to get it right the first time. So questions about the dip? Yeah? Uh, you mentioned that uh, people don't get it. They often misinterpret the message. Can you explain what their interpretation is? Well, number one, they think best in the world means you have to be the fanciest, most expensive. Number two, they think that um, 
what I'm talking about when I say uh, best in the world is really the best really in the whole world, not in your tiny market. Right, yeah. So, so this notion of monopoly, again, is I understand that Atlantic Avenue is not the best property in monopoly, but it might be your property. And if it's your property, that's good enough if you build in a hotel there. You can still do just fine because you're the best hotel in the world on Atlantic. So the goal is to build that square just the right size that you can possess it. Yeah. One way that I coach people on being referable is that when they think of that thing, they need to think of you. So it activates a particular activator. So when I think of a realtor in Hastings, I think of Arthur. When I think of a realtor in Folsom, California, I think of Dave Chapman. So they're the best in the world right. in their community of excellence. That's right. So if I was going to open a real estate office, I would spend the first three years not doing what I see the real estate people around here doing, which is balloons, those little folding metal signs that they put on street corners, making sure they have the right kind of Mercedes to drive the person to the house. What I would be spending my time doing is making sure that every community organization had its meetings in my offices, because I'd have a big enough meeting room that they could meet there as often as they wanted. I'd figure out how to get on the school board. I'd figure out how to be the assistant coach of the football team. I'd figure out how to be this integral member of the community and not worry so much about whether or not I was selling a house tomorrow because there's a trust shortage. There isn't a people who know how to fill out forms shortage. And that what we know from the National Association of Realtors is that uh, more than 70% of the people who list the house pick the realtor who calls them back first. And so the goal is how do you get called first, not how do you prove that your yield on a percentage basis is better than everybody else's yield. And if you get enough listings, you're going to make money. So this is a multi-year process of owning a tiny market as opposed to running from one cool opportunity to the other hoping you'll be done. It's about signing up for the whole process. Yes. What are some of the things that you recommend to people when they need to assess whether they care enough about being the best in the world to do that? Well, I think that people fool themselves into thinking that they need to care about what it is they make. Like, so I have done projects where what I make is the most important thing in the world to me, and it's not about me. But most of the projects I've done are projects where the transaction and the people and the atmosphere and the way it makes us all feel is way more important to me than whether or not you, you know, want this particular widget or not. Yeah, so my dad runs the most, uh, the, the hospital crib company with the biggest market share. 90% of all the hospital cribs in the world are made in Buffalo, New York in a UAW-organized metal-bending painting factory that makes hospital cribs. Now, my dad has never been in a hospital crib and hopefully never will. And while it's important to him that nurses have this useful tool, it is way more important to him that his workforce feels the way they do and that his customers feel the way they do and that it's built in Buffalo, New York in a factory that's 100 years old, et cetera, et cetera. So um, what does he care about the people? Unbelievably. Does he care about his clients? Enormously. Does he care about that particular piece of steel? Not so much. So this is about how do you put your work on the line, not yourself on the line, and what are you willing to do 
to speak up for your work. And, in, and if that requires you failing along the way, that's part of the cost. Right? And that's the people we see come out ahead almost every time. The people who are busy cutting corners and trying to close the sale tomorrow may win tomorrow, but they inevitably don't win in the long run. The, 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 I guess what, you know, I'll ask my question. Sure. Um, people tell themselves stories often to say it's about the widget. When it's not about the widget, so Chris is very perceptive from so it's not about this because Chris has been four different completely unrelated businesses who's trying to do the same thing every time. He cared enough about the same thing every time. Right. But a lot of people have difficulty figuring out what is that driving force. Correct. And so my question is, how have you seen people successfully figure out what that thematic driving force thing is? So, so like your career, you've done a bunch of different things, I'd say, in the same ballpark, the same theme of impact throughout. Um, it, see, it's just so messy. Because, you know, you, you'll meet a guy who's a partner at a law firm and has been a partner in a law firm for 37 years. And for him, his love of the law and his love of, the, of his partners and his love of his reputation are all the same thing, right? And I don't know how to tease them apart. I'm multipational, so I'm doing a whole bunch of things, many of which you've never seen because they're in completely different segments. And for me, the project is what the texture is for me. And the, you know, so if I'm doing a project where I'm saddled with someone who I don't respect, it's very painful for me. And I try to figure out how to change those things. But the widget itself has a certain level of quality, but I've never once made a perfect widget. There are other people who make perfect widgets. I always don't. And I am also very comfortable with that. So I don't know how to tease it apart for people. What I do know is they need to look for the fear. That over and over and over again, this comes down to where is your fear? Where is your soft spot? Where is that thing you're protecting? And that when we somehow let go of our guard and expose that soft spot is when we do our best work, right? But it's the people who are always like this, they can't run very fast because they're like this, and so they get less done because they're so busy protecting the soft spot. So when I find somebody who keeps jumping from thing to thing or coming up with clever elevator pitches or gets stuck, sooner or later it's going to come down to the fear. So if I'm going to talk about someone like Stephanie who's just filled with this joy and enthusiasm and smarts and productivity, if she doesn't accomplish everything she's capable of in the next year, it's because somewhere you're afraid of something. We don't know what it is, but you're holding back on something. And if you find it, then you're going to be able to lead with that, and your projects are going to be much more likely to succeed. This is never, not never, it's almost never about talent. It's about what why are we sabotaging our talent and not going through the dip? Because it's easier to just say, oh, I failed at this, and now I can go start the next thing. I think different projects have different size dips. Like learning to do walk the dog with a yo-yo is a fairly small dip transaction. It takes about two hours with a yo-yo before almost any coordinated person can do walk the dog. Whereas learning how to juggle five pins is a three-week dip. So for two and a half weeks, you're hurting yourself and hitting yourself, and then it works. Your project is a three-year project. It's going to take you three years before you're going to make a big profit being the default list. Go look at how long it took Nielsen and SoundScan and everything else. So to get through a dip that big, you need a rich uncle, 
You need a partner or you need a business model that gets you small sales to keep you in business. So your choices are... You don't have the rich uncle. So your choices are pick a smaller project with a smaller dip or figure out a model where some clients are paying you before you're ready to fund the whole thing or, as you said, freelance to pay for your day job. That's really hard. The third one is really hard. And the reason it's really hard is you're in a race to make your list the default list. That as you go out into the world and talk about it, other people are going to want to do it too because it's not only yours. can't protect it. So you're going to want to go full speed ahead. But getting freelance work is hard and time consuming. right? If you've got someone who's willing to pay you $500 an hour for eight hours a week, go take it for sure. But if you've got to actually get good at it and compete with Sarah, Sarah's working all the time to get freelance work. You're not because you're trying to build something else. That's going to be a real tension for you. So what I learned is I needed to have small dip projects that paid bills that over time gave me a platform to do bigger dip projects. See what I'm getting at? Or when I got in the internet space, I realized that for a long time I could get it funded because AOL would pay me money and CompuServe would pay me money and Prodigy would pay me money to build for them. I used all that profit to build my web thing. But again, it wasn't this one long three-year dip where I wasn't going to get paid for two and a half years. That kind of project, that's like an architect building his own house with his own hammer and he has to drive to Maine every time he wants to go to work. That doesn't work. So you've got to make sure there's alignment between your resources, your customers, and how big the dip is. Thank you for listening to The Startup School with Seth Godin. To learn more about Seth or to subscribe to his daily blog, please visit sethgodin.com. You can also find his books in any bookstore or on amazon.com. This has been an Earwolf Media production. Executive producers Jeff Ulrich and Scott Aukerman. For more information, visit earwolf.com.